Hello and welcome to the Prospect Sermons podcast, the preaching ministry of Prospect Baptist Church. This podcast is dedicated to the faithful exposition of the scripture and the edification of the local church. This is Parker Smith, senior pastor of Prospect Baptist, located in Fayetteville, Tennessee. Our prayer is that the sermon you're about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's word, point you toward the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Prospect Sermons podcast. Galatians chapter number two. We're going to continue our sermon series this morning looking at verses 17 and 18, maybe dip into verse 19 as well uh, this morning. If you are a guest here with us, I want to say a word of welcome to you. My name is Parker. I'm the senior pastor here at Prospect Baptist Church, and we are delighted to have you with us. I'm going to bear with me just a moment. I hope I don't feed back in here. Don't worry about following me with the camera. You don't have to but I'm going to grab something that I will use a little bit later um, in our service today. I had a bigger ladder, but it would have hit the ceiling, so I just got this eight-foot one instead. But um, any of you like climbing? A few of you. Anybody scared of heights this morning? I'm going to set that right there. I am scared of heights for sure. If that falls, um, it may bless you. But anyway, we'll use that in just a moment. But... um, By way of introduction, I want to just highlight something for you. You probably heard this a time or two, but um, the highest mountain here on this earth is that of Mount Everest, and each year people try to ascend to the height of that mountain, Uh, but year in and year out, nonetheless, uh, many people have died and passed away. The fatality rate, this is from a news article that I read earlier this week, Um, the fatality rate is 6.5% of climbers uh, to attempt to summit the top of the mountain actually die. To date, actually 300 people have perished trying to ascend the mountain. Now, 4,500 4, have reached the top, but nonetheless, it is a dangerous ascent. Much, much more deadly, potentially, than ascending to the top of a ladder is ascending to the top of Mount Everest. There is avalanches that could come. There's cracking ice and these, all of these different crevices and obstacles that you face, all of these hindrances that you will come across. But the main one is that of altitude. It's that of actually being able to breathe. It's that of altitude sickness. The height is some 29,000 feet, more than five and a half miles above sea level, the equivalent of 20 Empire State Buildings stacked on top of one another is Mount Everest. The lack of oxygen can disorient even the most experienced of climbers, and it has. And get this notion, many have come and many have tried and many have failed and many have Perish, even recently, but also certainly in the past years as well, even the most experienced of climbers have difficulty tackling the Mount Everest. And the thrill of this, get this, the thrill of wanting to ascend, something that you enjoy of climbing the highest mountain. And certainly there can be a thrill like no other. Yet that very thrill can be the very thing with one wrong step that could very well kill you. One misstep could lead you to a road of destruction. Get this, the very thing that you pursue is the very thing that in the end could destroy you. 
The very thing that you sought to master is the very thing that mastered you and brought about your destruction. There's no doubt a tension that's here, and there's a tension here within this text as well that we'll continue to unpack. Remember, the apostle Paul is building toward his climax in verse 21 of chapter number 2. But this morning, looking at that illustration of climbing, and that'll all make sense in just a moment. But the very thing that you pursue could be the very thing that destroys you and that tension that is there, if we're not careful, we could fall into that camp as well. We're looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Would you stand out of honor and reverence of the reading of God's word this morning? This is Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. But if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too will be found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. God, I pray that as we examine your word, that you would illumine our hearts to the truth of Christ and what he has accomplished for us. Father, that as we unpack this text, we would see at the very center and at the very core is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that by faith, we would hear your word and by your spirit, we would receive it and we would apply it to our lives and that we would be changed as a result of not just hearing, but obeying what you have commanded from us. God, help us in that. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to call your attention this morning just to two things. In your bulletins, it says this, that of guilt and innocence. And the second thing is leaving ruins alone. Point number one, I get this from verse 17, this idea of guilt and innocence. This is a highly debated verse and text of Scripture. Reading it just alone gives you some sense of confusion about what is being said because you can honestly hear some of the undertones of the argument of the Judaizers against Paul. In other words, he's saying, Paul, if you're encouraging Jews to neglect the law of God, you're encouraging them to sin, and by nature of that, you're making Christ the agent of sin. And in verse 17, Paul begins to make his point very clear is that Christ is not the agent of sin but rather the rescuer of sinners. That's the main point that he's making. So I'm giving it to you on the front end so we can unpack it. The point is this, is that Christ is not the agent of sin, but instead he is the rescuer of sinners. Notice what Paul does. On the one hand, he is admitting the charges of the Judaizers, but on the other hand, also correcting them where they are wrong. Look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. We, namely Peter and Paul, if we are guilty of sinners, if we are charged as that, then may it be be seen in this text, may we be found to be sinners. 
The word that is used there is the word eurisco. It's the word to define or to discover or to detect. It has legal and forensic meaning behind it. It, it is denoting one's right standing before God Almighty. And if there is a verdict that is to be pronounced of judgment, and that will all make more sense in just a moment, this tension that he is laying there. But he says, look, if you want to lay a charge of sin against me or sin on Peter, then it will land with validity because we too are found to be sinners. We are guilty as charged, just like the Gentiles. So he said, as we talked about last week, that we ourselves, verse 15, Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we have also believed in Christ in order that we would be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And we said the Apostle Paul was quoting from Psalm 143, verse 2. It's a Psalm of David. And the Psalm of David goes like this. It says, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. In one very real sense, there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. Both are indeed our sinners and in effect are helpless to bring about their own redemption. It is for this reason, the Apostle Paul says, that we too have believed in Christ Jesus. Flip over to the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, keep your thumb on the book of Romans. We're going to look at several passages in Romans this morning, but start in chapter number 3. The Apostle Paul is making this argument that we too, we're found to be sinners. Just like Jews, just like the Gentiles, we too are sinners. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He continues in verse 23 of chapter number 3. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, there's the hinge there, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And if you want to charge me, the Apostle Paul says, as being a sinner, if you want to charge Peter as a sinner, then let it land with validity. I'm guilty as charged. I am a sinner. Where is it? That, where else are you wanting me to find my justification? In the law? It's not in the law. It's the law that condemned me. But if I endeavor to be justified in Christ, where else am I going to find it? Am I going to find it in the law? I can't find it in the law. So I'm looking for it elsewhere. I'm looking for it in Christ. Where else was I looking to find my justification? We're all sinners, and I'm found to be sinners. Every one of us are. And therein lies the problem of the Judaizers and every other religion and religious system in the world that tells you you can climb the mountain of works and find peace with God. 
that you can somehow or another accredit to yourself some form of righteousness and found to be righteous in God's eyes on your own merit. It's a lie. And notice what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Watch what happens when we seek for righteousness outside of anything other than the, than the work of Jesus Christ. Look what happens. Romans 10 verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they begin to seek to establish their own righteousness. And they did not submit to God's righteousness. They were attempting to find righteousness from someplace else. God's law wasn't his means of making you righteous. For no works of the law can anyone be justified. Instead, the law's purpose was to expose your sin and to point you to your very need of a Savior. That's why he says in Romans 10, verse 4, the very next verse, for the end of the law for righteousness is Christ to everyone who believes. And the Apostle Paul says, what righteousness do I have in the law? I don't have any. Where else do you want me to find it? Because I didn't have it. Even my good deeds and my attempts to be the best Jew that I could, I still failed. And the trouble of the works of your flesh and living according to your flesh is that even your best deeds are like filthy rags before him. Even the best that you have won't cut it before God. That's Isaiah 64, verse 6. Even on your best of days, you still need Jesus. You needed Jesus. You still need Jesus. And you will always need Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul says, you know what? Yes, I'm guilty as charged. I am a sinner. And oh, how I need the grace of God. I'm a sinner. I have no righteousness. My only hope to be justified was seeking justification in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm trusting justification by faith in Christ alone. But yet neglecting food laws and circumcision as a means of right standing, that's not sin. That's freedom. There's not anything sinful about freedom. There's not anything sinful about just being found to be a sinner. That's who you are. But there's nothing sinful about that. There isn't anything sinful about denying works righteousness for salvation. There's nothing sinful about that. And Christ, he makes the point, isn't the agent of sin. And here's where you're wrong, Judaizers. If you think that Christ is serving and is a servant of sin, by no means. That's not what this is about. Certainly not. My sin does not make Christ a sinner, though a sinner who I am. That is who I am. And the only grounds that I am righteous by, by having God declare me righteous, what we looked at last week, being declared righteous, that's what it means to be justified. That is now who I am. And experiencing that grace that God gives to us, the Apostle Paul says, that's not going to lead to abusing grace. That's going to lead to gratitude and living in the very grace that God has given you. 
And so if you're concerned that by God making you right will lead to you further sinning, well, I got news for you. You didn't understand what God has done for you in Christ. That's the Apostle Paul's point that he is making. He makes the same point. I told you it would hit Romans time and time again. Look at Romans chapter 5 and how he ends chapter number 5 and moves into chapter number 6. Therefore, as one trespass, this is verse 18, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so that by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Watch this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paraphrase. Is Christ the agent of sin? By no means. Certainly not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And the Apostle Paul is pulling this out. and says, but if you think that Christ is just a means that you can get away with all your sins, then you don't understand true transformation. You don't understand the gospel. The very thing that he rescued you from, namely sin, is the very thing that you think you're going to just run back to now? Anyone who would live this way doesn't understand the very freedom that Christ has given them. This isn't about living without restraint. It's not about living without laws. Instead, it is about living in the transformation and freedom that only Christ can bring. He isn't the agent of sin by no means. Certainly not. He is instead the only means of rescue for you. He's the only grounds in which you will be justified. He isn't the agent of bondage. He's the agent of freedom. He's delivering you from God. He's delivering you and finding your freedom in his love. And so the apostle Paul's answer to the Judaizers is, yes, I'm a sinner, as everyone is, both Jews and Gentiles. I have no righteousness apart from that that is given to me through Christ. Yes, Christ has freed us from the works of the law, and no, he is not thereby an agent of sin, but instead the means of our freedom. You see innocence, and you see guilt. You see the guiltiness of Paul, but the innocence of Christ and the freedom that he grants to those only by faith in him. Point number two, to leave ruins alone. I'm going to dip into verse 19 But keep in mind, I'm saving 19 through 21 for next week. Verse 18 says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. The Apostle Paul is pointing to and hinging off the very notion of what is the purpose of the law. Is that to expose sin? And so I'm not going to resurrect the law again. I'm not going to demand as it, as, as it to be my basis of justification. The law can't save me. 
Only Christ can save me. The law can only further expose my sin. So why in the world would I want to resurrect something that's only going to expose my very need for something else, namely a Savior? It's not, I don't want to nullify the Savior's work in that by rebuilding the very deeds that condemn me in the first place. And the Apostle Paul begins his argument as to why the why Christ is not an agent of sin is that he is freeing us from dependence on the law. Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And the question that I begin to ask is, what had Paul torn down? And what he seems to be saying is that in seeking to be justified in Christ... He has torn down the law as a means of justification before God. And therein lies the crux of the problem, once again, of the Judaizers as well. The Apostle Paul says, I don't have a problem with the law. I have a problem with the way that you're using the law, Judaizers. I don't have a problem with the law of God. I have a problem with the way that you're using and manipulating the law to communicate something that it was never intended to communicate, Judaizers. And my concern is not with the law. My concern is what you're doing with the law. You're just like the Pharisees. You're just like what they used to do, attempting to use the law of God and attempting to use the law of Moses as a means in which it was never intended to be used. And in doing so, you're tying up heavy burdens and laying them upon people's weight that they cannot carry. You're loading them up with hard-to-bear burdens, but you yourself, you don't touch those burdens with one of your fingers. The law was never intended. God never intended the law to be your grounds of justification. It was evidence of right standing, but it wasn't the grounds through which that you would be justified. And the law is to increase trespass. And it's to point you to the very need, as we've said it time and time again, is to point you to your need of a perfect law keeper. But it cannot save you. But you, Judaizers, and you, Pharisees, you're attempting to use the law of God in a way in which it was never intended to be used. Namely, bringing your justification by works of the law. And what the Apostle Paul was tearing down was this misuse of the law of God as the right standing before God. And it's that use of the law, the Apostle Paul says, that will forever keep you separated from God. And resurrecting that law will only prove you to be a transgressor over and over and over and over again. And it will only lead to your separation. And it will only lead to your condemnation. It cannot save you. One theologian said it this way. He said, God originally gave the law as a railroad track, as a way to guide in Israel's obedience. That the engine was supposed to pull a person along, that engine was God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the coupling between our car and the engine was that of faith. And so Old Testament and in the New Testament, salvation has always been by grace through faith alone in Christ alone along the tracks of obedience that God has given in his law and in his word. 
That is the way in which we are to live our lives, not looking to the law to save us, but looking by faith to one who has kept the law for us. It is guiding us, it is leading us, it is shepherding us, if you will. Flip over to Genesis chapter 11. This will all make sense in just a second. Every, all these little pieces that I'm trying to pull together right here. Because we have a temptation to misabuse and misuse the law of God in the very same way. This is after the flood. And God says to the descendants of Noah, go and disperse and spread my glory into all the earth. And you see this account of what we know as the Tower of Babel. This is Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Sinar and, sh and settled there. And they said to one another, keep in mind what God has commanded them to do. Go and disperse his glory into all the earth. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its tops to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed all over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come now, let us go down and confuse their language so they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from there over all the face of the earth and let, left off building their city. Therefore, the name of the place was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. God says to these people, you go and you make a name for the Lord. You spread his glory into all over the earth. You go and be about my fame, my glory. Do what I've commanded you to do. You be obedient to what I've called you to do. And what does humanity say? They say, no. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to make a city for us. We want to build a name for ourselves. We want to get this brick, and we want to reach and build this tower to reach the heavens so that maybe when we come to you in our own merit and say, look at what we've built, will you accept me now? That's what legalism does. That's what the Pharisees were attempting to do. That's what the Judaizers were attempting to do. And that's exactly what every human heart loves to do. They take God's gracious means of provision and they turn it into works of the flesh and grounds of justification. Here, look at my stones. Look at my bitumen. Look at my bricks and my mortars. Look at the name I built for myself. Will you accept me and violate the very command that God has given them? And instead, they turn it inward and they said, let's make a name for ourselves. Look what I have accomplished. And we turn God's gracious commandments and his gracious means of provision and we turn it into our faulty and futile attempt to be self-righteous before him. 
And instead of depending on God's grace, to say, God, look what you've given me. Look at the provision that you've given me. Look at the tracks that you've called me to live by. Look, I got a better idea. I take all the stuff that you gave me and I'll erect a ladder out of it. And I'll take a step. Am I getting a little closer? And I'll, I think this should probably go here. So let me get another step. Am, am I getting closer to you, God? And we take God's gracious means of provision that was meant to lead us to a law keeper. And we erect a ladder with it and say, God, will this be the grounds in which if I ever accomplish this, that I'll be accepted before you? May my ladder reach the height of the heavens. And we prop up our self-righteousness and we say, I think this should probably go here. But at the very bottom of it, we prop that up to the door of heaven and we climb our way to the top and we begin to make our ascent to the top. We climb every single fiber, every single rung on the ladder and say, God, will you accept me now? And God says, that wasn't why I gave you my law. That wasn't why I gave you my commandments. I gave you my commandments to help you see that you had no hope, no hope apart from a law keeper doing it for you. And what happens is when we erect this ladder, we begin to pull all these different pieces and we morph it into something that it wasn't. We add things to it and say, I think a run could go here because that would help my step a little bit. And you see the elevation of these traditions. That's what the Pharisees were absorbed in. They didn't just have the law, they had all their traditions as well that they thought was good too. And the Pharisees and scribes come to him in Matthew 15, and they said to, said to Jesus, says, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Notice what Jesus says. He answered them, why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God has commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother surely will die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what, 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 what would you have gained from me is given to God, he, has ne he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied well against you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You've propped up tradition. You've propped up things that weren't in my word and weren't in my law, and you're using them as a grounds of right standing, but the law was never meant to save you. The law is only going to condemn you. And instead of trusting in that and trusting to the law keeper, you want to look at other people for the sake of your tradition and everything else and say, do this or do that, or that's not how we do things around here. That's not because what God has said, not because I said so, not because God said so, because I said so. That's legalism, folks. And it crushes people. It crushes them. It deflates them. It burdens them. It does not give them life. It does not liberate them. It only enslaves them. And it's not freeing you either, Judaizers. It's only enslaving you. And God never intended that the law would justify you. 
And by attempting to make it justify, you're only enslaving those that you're calling to do that. Because the Apostle Paul would say, it too once enslaved me. I too was a Pharisee. I I was a transgressor. I'm still a sinner, but I don't need the law to justify me. I need Christ to justify me. This mindset that only Christ could set them free. And he says, for if I... If I rebuild what I tore down, I myself proved to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He says, I know this use of the law. I know it well. And I'm not going back there. I used to use the law like a ladder that I had to climb. But I'm not going back. I'm not going to do that with the law because that wasn't the way that it was intended to operate. I'm going to allow the law to do what the law was intended to do, and I'm going to let it condemn me. And I'm going to let it kill me so that Christ can save me. Let the law kill you. Let it condemn you so that you can find your one and only hope in the Savior. Look in Romans 7. Paul's problem was not with the law. It was the misuse of the law. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am in the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want to do, but the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So it is now, so it is no longer under the, the, I, I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me. That is in my flesh, where I have desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find that it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Watch what he says here. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this bondage of sin? Who will deliver me from the condemnation that the law brings? Who will deliver me from not being able to achieve the very thing that I want to try to do? I cannot do it. I wish I could climb the ladder. I've tried time and time again, but I just keep falling off. I can't do it. Who's going to save me? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And every time the Apostle Paul says, every time, every time I got the ladder back out, every time I got the ladder back out, I couldn't live for God. And the only way that I could live for God is I had to die to self and I had to die to every rule. I couldn't cross the I and every T because the crushing defeat of my soul, it was robbing me of the freedom that God gives to me in Christ. And that is the damning nature of legalism. That's what it does. It robs you of freedom and says, just get up another wrong. If you could take another step, here's what you got to do. Well, you know, we've always done it this way. I appreciate your heart, but that's not how we do it. Well, did you know so-and-so? She wore the wrong clothes to church. She should know better. Do you know they ought not to associate with people like that? Those Gentile sinners bringing it back home. 
What are you doing? Eat with Gentile sinners. What are you doing? Joining at the table with them. The apostle Paul says, I'm not going back there, Judaizers. I'm not going back there. I'm not going back to that legalism. I'm not going back to the bondage that's there. I've been free in Christ. There's nothing sinful about that. And I'm not going back to the bondage that's there in legalism. I'm not going there. I've been there, Judaizers. I'm not going back. Why would I rebuild what I tore down? I'm not going back there. Why would I rebuild what Christ has brought down, brought down all the divisions in the person and work of Jesus Christ? He's broken down every dividing wall of hostility, Ephesians 2. He has destroyed it all. And so the Apostle Paul says, I'm not going back. I'm leaving the ruins, and I'm not going back there. Instead, I'm going to let the law do what the law was intended to do, namely, expose my sin. Namely, confront me and condemn me as a transgressor. Condemn me as a sinner. Kill me so that Christ can save me. And only Christ can save you. And in the very death of you dying in that, you see the glorious power of his resurrection, and only there do you find true life. And only there do you find true freedom from the bondage of sin, and only there do you find reconciliation and peace with God. And the life and a relationship, not with rules and regulations, but with a person, your very Savior, Jesus Christ. The difference was subtle. The difference was that of leaving the tracks on the ground and elevating a ladder and propping it up to the door of heaven and saying, would you let me in if I climb this? But the difference was even more subtle than that. The difference is that of looking to the law as a savior, as the Judaizers and the Pharisees were doing, looking to the law as a savior, a better way, and the biblical way, is looking to the law for a Savior. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 5. He says, you search the Scripture. You search the Scripture because in them you think you have eternal life. And yet it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have Life, the law is not going to save you. It's only going to condemn you. Look to Christ and Christ alone and find your freedom and find your life. And so I close with this question as we can crescendo into verses 19 through 21. What is your view of your transgression before God? That may sound like an odd question to ask. I'll ask it again. What is your view of your transgression before God? Do you see it as trivial? Do you see it as a mere inconvenience, a, a misstep or a mistake, or I'll do better next time, something that's maybe vile but not despairing, something that's worthy of punishment but not worthy of condemnation, something that you should recoil from but nothing that would actually kill you? There's a danger in this type of thinking 
to diminish sin and not make it so large that it's, you make it more palatable, you make it more manageable, you, and you begin to resurrect this mountain of legalism and say, I can overcome that. And it's just a misstep. I'll, I'll do better next time. It's just a knock on the road. It doesn't condemn me. It's worthy of punishment, but it doesn't condemn me. Maybe I should recoil from it, but it doesn't kill me. And we begin to erect this mountain of legalism that we must climb, that we must ascend to, that we must live to try to achieve. And we treat, in doing that, we treat Christ as a means through which we just keep on living in the trivialness of our sin. No rescue, no freedom. We just live however we want. And in this way, we do make Christ as a means of justifying our sin. I'll just do better. Now just forgive me, I'll, I'll make up the difference, but I, I promise I can do better. I've got another wrong, I'll climb up a little bit. The Apostle Paul had a very different view of sin altogether. He says, I'm going to see the law, and I'm going to see sin for what it really is. It is a magnification of how gross and sinful and how wicked I am. It, it is pointing me to the matter, no matter how hard I try, I will fail. And my sin is utterly condemning. It is an utter and blatant rebellion against the God of the universe. And it is the very means through which I am eternally separated from God, fully deserving of the condemnation, deserving his full weight of the wrath of God. Because of this, I have no hope. Wretched man that I am. My sin is condemning me. My sin is exposing me. My sin is bringing about my death. My sin is killing me. And I'm going to let it kill me. And I'm not going to look to myself and lifting up a mountain. I'm not going to trust in myself to earn my right standing. I don't need a ladder. I need God. I need God to lift up his son. I need God to die in my place. I need God in Christ to accomplish salvation for me. I need Christ to bring resurrection from the death that my sin has brought. I need God to take me, sinner though I am, and trust in Christ for his righteousness, and he declare me righteous. I need God. I need Christ crucified on my behalf. And the very flesh that has brought me death is the very sin that Christ has died for. I don't need a mountain of legalism, and I don't need a list of religious do's and don'ts. I need a cross, and on it my Savior has given his life for me, and may I too be put to death there. That's the Apostle Paul's point here. And you see it time and time again. It was Moses that received the law of God at Mount Sinai. And surely there would be many who would try to ascend the holy hill before God and prop up their works before him, but they would all fail. It was Moses that received the law, but beloved, thanks be to God, Jesus would ascend the Mount of Calvary and he would fulfill the law for us. And he would be crushed 
for our sin. And all of our sin and all of our guilt will be put on his cross. And God was opening a way in which we only have right standing through Christ. Not the ladder that you prop up to be justified before him. Am I speaking to anyone today? Do you need to turn from trusting in your works? Do you need to turn from trusting in yourself to trusting in maybe good things to earn your right standing? May I implore you this morning to forsake your sin, to forsake your flesh, and to turn and trust Christ one and only Savior. Well, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Prospect Sermons Podcast. If you'd like more information about Prospect Baptist Church, you can visit our website at prospectbaptistchurch.org, or you can find us on Facebook by searching Prospect Baptist Church, Fayetteville, Tennessee. If you live in the Fayetteville area, we would love for you to join us in worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. If you're not comfortable doing that at this time, we understand, but please know we are live streaming our services on Facebook Live. We do hope to see you soon and look forward to you worshiping with us. Until next time on the Prospect Sermons Podcast.